0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit hearstranch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, if you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Are you looking for a speed course in food history? I've got just the book for you. Stay tuned on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. And if you have looked at some of the uh, tomes, I have to call them tomes, large books on food history, culinary history, history in general, uh, wondering how do we begin to research food history? Not always an easy topic to, to find out about. It can be daunting. But today I have for you a brand new book, at least in the United States, that will give you an idea of what history is all about in terms of food. 4,000 years of history. It's called A History of Food in 100 Recipes by William Sitwell. And the British version has been out for um, about a year now, I guess. And today is the publication date. I think it's today. William, uh, we'll find out, of the American version of the book. And I have to tell you, it is delightful. It is academic, and yet it is a pleasure to read, a lot of humor thrown in. And it really does give you a sense of where we came from in the world of food and how everything old is new again. And William is joining me stateside, actually, but on the phone from San Francisco. William, are you there?
3: i 'm here Hello. terrific,
2: Hi, welcome to the show. Thank you. I have to say that you know a lot of people were kind of oh laughing and waving their hand about the book saying oh well it 's just a humorous romp through you know through a, a serious topic. It is not a humorous romp. it is a romp, yes indeed, but you it 's really a serious work, and I commend you the I mean the bibliography alone can give people a really good idea of where to go to start their research I think Cong- congratulations i have to say congratulations
3: well that's very kind yeah it was a <clears throat> it was a, a long slog well actually it was quite a short slog i wrote it in 6 months
2: um, how you know, how that's a, that's what i can't imagine you were t- talking about different things that came your way in 2010 mm. but you know i and i i gave short shrift to you actually as the writer you have been immersed in food food culture um as the as a writer and as the editor of Waitrose Kitchen, which um, for those who don't know, it's it's a very popular British food magazine, uh, formerly known as Food Illustrated. And you've been on TV food shows um, and radio. And as you said, you're and you're a, a, a talker, a good talker, presenter. You said somebody who can't stop eating that right there I think is the first, <laughs> is the first requirement um, so you have been immersed in food for a while, so to speak
3: yeah I'm basically I mean I'm a journalist who ended up on a food magazine and realized that uh, it's a wonderful subject for a journalist because food touches so many aspects of life um, it's a great doorway into different people's cultures and it's about politics it's about economics it's about culture and it's about friendship it's about sharing fun you know so you know and also it's about chefs and crazy chefs and you know i've discovered that we could break news stories by pitting one chef against the other <laughs> there's lots of great food rows you can have you can create wonderful scoops you know um, uh, you know have coming up with polls in, the, in 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 food people have lots of opinions about food everyone oh, is yes, passionate about food from from the farmer to the consumer, it touches everything. So it's as, as a writer and a journalist, it's the most perfect subject. And also for me, the food scene in, in, in Britain, where I live and where I work, over the last 15 years where I've been immersed in this subject, has been incredibly exciting. So I've watched, monitored, written and engaged in a subject that has become, you know, really, uh, you know part of the national debate, really, in the UK. and, no, and As you know, well and, as
2: it has here. And uh, as I say, everything old is new again. I mean, it's not exactly an, anything new, but it has taken on, um, I guess, uh, a, a position of, of importance, of more importance than it has for many years, at least um, in terms of people's... Um, uh, what they're what they're looking for in food, and and, and their, the production of it, and the growing of it, and and people are, seem to be more concerned than ever with food.
3: Yeah, and it's slowly dawning on people that that the what is what most people think is common sense really is common sense in that you know it's a, a very important part of your health and well-being what you eat and also how you source that food is very important for the health of the planet and. I mean, the 20th century saw this extraordinary rise in the growth of consumerism and in, and in sort of the processing of food and, and the manufacturing of food and the, the move to, to fast food. And um, I mean, there was an amazing guy called Clarence Saunders who invented the modern supermarket, really, in the States in the early kind of 19-teens. And uh, he founded a store called Piggly Wiggly, which you've probably heard of, which is still going now. And he That's was an amazing man because he was traveling on a train from Indiana trying to work out how to deal with the inefficiencies in the retail trade at a time when you know, you queued up for food and people in white coats served you and therefore your staff were rushed at particular times of the day and then had nothing to do with the, with the rest of the day. And he, on this train, he stopped and he saw a pig farm and he saw a mother sow being fed by her little piglets and he hit on the idea of self-service. So he opened stores where people could help themselves, and he called it Piggly Wiggly. And some might say that Clarence Saunders then unleashed this sort of mass consumerism on the world. But I mean, I'm sure it could have happened for other reasons, but Mm -hmm. subsequently from the 20s onwards, we've seen the mechanization of food, we've seen people embracing new technology in their homes, and it took people like Francis Moore Lappe famous Californian.
2: Diet for a small planet. right?
3: You know, to start saying, hang on a second, we need to think about the planet, we need to think about the conversions of protein from grain into meat and the inefficiencies in that, the amount of water it takes to raise cattle. And she argued for the vegetarian diet very, very successfully. And it's taken people like her and various campaigners to to sort of try and get the world to wake up and see the damage that we're doing with, with our obsession with fast food and processed food and, and, and the manufacture of food. So, you know, the last 100 years has been an extraordinary revolution. But you're quite right in that there's lots of things in the food scene today that people think are new, and there's nothing new. I mean, I went through quite a lot of Victorian cookbooks when I came home from an auction a few years ago from the London Auction House Sotheby's. And, and there I found in a book called uh, Castle's, dictionary it's a dictionary of food people talking about leftovers as a sort of new trend and of course here we are you know editors like me who edit food magazines thinking that you know leftovers is new and trendy and of course it's not at all (laughs) and and also the cycles of publishing throughout history you know go in you know endless cycles in that um you know people will go from trying to be incredibly authentic. And then someone will say, oh, that takes too long, so they then produce something that's really, really speedy. And then someone says, oh, it's not authentic enough. We must produce something that's more authentic and less quick. Right. And, you know, So you see over time the hist- You know, these cycles in publishing, cycles in food trends. And it's something that I wanted to pick up during the course of my book.
2: Well, I'm so glad you went to that auction and picked up those, those old books, those old cookery books, because um, it, it really did spark uh, a terrific, as I said before, romp through 4,000 years. Uh, less people think you jumped right in and in the 1900s. Uh-uh. You start w- with uh, Jean Botero, even uh, Mesopotamia, the foods of Mesopotamia, all the way up through Mario Batali talking about um, the food he cooks today in his restaurants. And the first... and It's not... And, and really um, the title it's not 100 recipes necessarily, although yes, you do have sort of recipes, but it gives people the idea a hundred different things that you feel were, were I guess, points. Is that it? Um, yeah, that's right. Points of departure? I
3: mean, I'm, not, you know, I'm not going to start saying that I'm a fraudster and that I don't totally deliver what I promise. I mean, the book is called A History of Food and 100 Recipes. There aren't 100 recipes in there, but what I've done is I've stopped a particular point in history and have got as close to a recipe as I can
4: mm-hmm. because
3: I wanted to, write contemporaneous accounts you know I wanted to show people exactly how food was being written about at a particular moment in time and then not try and translate that for the modern cook not try to update it not try and say okay you know here's a recipe based on that which you can then go to your local market and deliver at home I wanted people to read how recipes were written over time and there were you know I needed to cover for example important moments in the development of bread. Now, bread, people weren't writing down recipes for bread until the sort of, uh, you know, the the 1400s, 1500s. So I stop at uh, the Bayou Tapestry, this famous tapestry that was produced after the Battle of Hastings in 1066, very famous English battle. And um, within that um, tapestry, there's a section where you can see a bit of sort of uh, outdoor catering, and you can see people making bread. And so I use that as a moment. And also 1066 was a point after which we see the introduction of the hair sieve, which sounds bizarre, but actually it's very important because the hair sieve enables people to refine the flour they were using, and it meant that people can then um, use a finer flour and produce much finer, whiter bread, which was seen as an amazing sort of status symbol. Right, And Likewise, you know, I wanted to touch on the Vikings, their contribution to the world. But Vikings didn't write down recipes. I mean, when they were marauding through Britain, for example, they didn't stop before <laughs> they pillaged and, and set fire to your house. They didn't stop to find out what you were eating and write down recipes. But what they, what they, what they do exist are the sagas, these amazing, this oral tradition of poems that record the various activities of the marauding Vikings. And so I use that as a moment to, to record a, a, a sort of fishy moment when I think it's Gretir the Strong, he's about to kill Eric the Red, and he goes off and buys a load of fish. <laughs> and, so, you know, and also, like, the, the, the first chapter in the whole book, um, I start in a, in, a, in a tomb in ancient Egypt where there's a very clear depiction of how you made Egyptian flatbreads in around 1958 BC. So I got the food editor that I worked with to look at the pictures I had transcribe from the wall of what was happening down onto a recipe and actually you know it's not a bad recipe it's really
2: not it's not a bad recipe i mean it's it's amazing how how very much like today's recipes if you're going to mill your own flour it is um and obviously they had some type of a sieve um even though it predates the hair sieve but they were and they do mention to remove the husks from you know from the finer parts of the grain but uh, it, that was an interesting story in itself. Um, the the tomb because it was a tomb of a woman who was not, you know, a, an empress. And That's it was- right. It's
3: very unusual. I mean, it's an unusual tomb. A as you say, because it's a tomb of a woman, and there are very few tombs to women. So she must have been very important, and she was either the wife or the mother of what's called the antifoker, who was one of the pharaoh's right-hand men. And so it's important for that, and also it's important because the paintings in the tomb are incredibly well-preserved. And, you know, the ancient Egyptians had depicted on the walls of their tombs the things that they wanted to take into the afterlife. And so obviously she loved her food and she loved her bread. I mean, there were depictions of um, butchery going on. There are depictions of beautiful paintings of um, fishes and, and various sort of uh, birds and so on. So she obviously loved nature and she loved her food. And so those things were depicted on the walls of her tomb.
2: All right. Well, you won me over when I saw that you did include two of my all-time favorites. One, you've just mentioned the Bayou Tapestry, um, which I think is has, is often ignored in terms of, of um, use for food history. In yeah, exactly. You
3: don't often see people talking right. about the Bayou Tapestry when they write yeah. about food.
2: And William the Conqueror so, loved to eat. I mean, <laughs> oh so, well, sure. Yeah,
3: and, and, you know, they had a pretty uh, efficient and sophisticated outdoor catering, as you can see. From, from various um, images on the tapestry.
2: Right, and the other one that you used um, was Hilary Sperling's um, writing of El- Lady Eleanor Fedeplace's Book of Receipts. Now, I I don't think I've ever come across anyone else who has referenced that book, and it's always been one of my favorite, and she took this from a manuscript, and I was just talking with someone else the other day on the air about how manuscripts give us so much more than when publishing finally came about, because... There are notes in the margins, and it's more of a personal accounting of how to cook. And And this is a delight. You know, Eleanor Fedeplace's um, uh, manuscript of, of her receipts is just a delightful accounting of, of cooking. So much being passed down by oral tradition, obviously. and And someone then finally takes the time to write it down and... And this was those so those two. I, I knew I was hooked as soon as I saw that you had both of those in your yeah. What, what's interesting
3: about um, Eleanor Fetterplace's book is that it it is one of many that that uh, probably exists, um, certainly existed in a lot of English houses, and probably across the states as well. Because mother would hand to daughter her recipes from her grandmother, mm-hmm. and then they would write down their recipe. Mm-hmm. And so, what you get over time is an extraordinary compendium of food across you know, many decades, if not a couple of hundred years. And what's fascinating about Eleanor Fetterplace's book is it dates back to 1604. It wasn't until um, her sort of great-great-great-grandniece came across it that she decided to transcribe it and publish it as a as a book, a uh, kind of low print. But for me, it sort of... it. Describes rather interestingly the food and the culinary practices of the of the, the turn of the you know the 16th century, 1604, and she's got this fantastic recipe for uh, for crayfish. And uh, you know, 1604 was not a great year. You know, they had the plague. There were lots of right. there was a lot of death going on. And um, uh, you know, what you get is a very clear depiction of how she ate and lived. You know, in the ovens that she had and and also the progress that you that you see in food, food history, because f- before that period, there was a lot of medieval influences on on, on food with sort of sweet matched with savoury, lots of saffron, almond milk, pottage, and so on. But she sort of moved on and sort of separate. You, you can see in her book separating the sweet and the savoury, and, and you can see a, a sort of modern progression, really.
2: All right. Well, I like how you read between the lines in many of these uh, references that you use because that's so much of what we have to do in reading old texts because it's not it's not always spelled out directly and so you have to kind of have an idea of what they're talking about and and you can get so much out of it Um, I want to ask you a few more questions about how you chose what you did when we come back after the short break so stay with us I wish that I were twins You great big baby kins So
4: I could love you twice as much as I do I'd have four loving arms to embrace This one's called I Wish I Were Twins I do, by Plexophonic on the Heritage I'd Radio Network twice as true What couldn't four lips do When four years hear you say that I'm yours Da-da-dum. I wish that I Twins, you great big baby kins, so I could love you twice as much as I do. So I could love you twice as much as I do. I'd have four loving arms to embrace you. Four eyes to idolize you each time I face you. With two hearts twice as true, what couldn't four lips do? When four ears hear you said that I'm yours. da 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 I wish that I were twins, you great big baby kins. So I could love you twice as much as I do. Hearst Ranch Grass-Fed Beef, pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch Grass-Fed Beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch Grass-Fed Beef, the authentic flavor of the American West.
2: Welcome back. I am talking with William Sitwell, a journalist and editor of Waitrose Kitchen, a food magazine in Britain, and a TV star. Well, Will appears on TV and radio, and William has written a new book called A History of Food in 100 Recipes, and just to give you an idea of the scope of some of his his references, he does include... Eliza Acton, Hannah Glass, Elizabeth David, Andrew Dalby, Jean Botero, uh, Botero Cato, uh, Mrs. Beaton's Book of Household Management, Bartolomeo Scappi, uh, the list goes on and on. You think of a reference that you may have used and it will be there, I assure you. And William, I'm not surprised because you come from quite a line of literary relatives from what my reading in your background, um, so that you are you're no newcomer to uh, research and writing and reading. Uh, tell us a little bit about your, about your family background in terms of being immersed in, in the world of, of words.
3: Well, my great-aunt was a famous poet called Edith Sitwell, and uh, she had two brothers, Osbert and Sir Sheverell. Sir Sheverell was my grandfather. He wrote over 130 books on poetry, music, and art, and his um, elder brother, Osbert, wrote a very famous autobiography called Left Hand, Right Hand, which basically portrayed a sort of dying period of, of the Edwardian life in England. And Edith was a very famous poet, partly because of the way she looked. I mean, she, my grandfather once said she looked like an altar on the move. She was always clad in sort of velvet gowns and amazing hats. And she had these beautiful long fingers that were adorned with, um, incredible sort of, uh, rings, huge rings made out of amethysts and so on. And she was, a an avant-garde poet. and, um, she, she never married. She had various sort of failed romances with, with people who were never going to marry her, probably, anyway. <laughs> and, um, but she, she was a brave poet. She wrote a lot of um, poetry um, in the war, in the Second World War, depicting the Blitz and so on in, in London, and, and she sort of stood up against that sort of thing, which was a brave thing to do at the time. And I suppose she's probably partly, mo- mostly famous for a, a, um, a piece of work called Facade, which were very rhythmic poems, using assonances and dissonances and metaphor and using language um, for its sound rather than necessarily its meaning. I would say she was, you know, she's an early white rapper. <laughs> and I love I love her work. It's, her poems are... The poems in Facade, which were put to music by William Wilton, brilliant English composer. Interesting. Um, are sort of move from the melancholy to the very fast and complicated. There's one called... Um, uh, hornpipe, um, which is the first one, which goes, um, said, us come to the drum, out of Babylon, hobby horses foam, the dumb, scud on which the courses of the breakers rocking horses, and with talk Lady Venus on the settee of the horse s c. sea. New arisen, Madam Venus, for his sake, from Farkin, the fat and severed emperor from Zanzibar, We like Golden Booker, to Asia, Africa, Cathay lay before that, shally lady by the fibroid, Shah. I'm not quite sure what that means. Oh, I'm I'm glad you don't, because I certainly
2: don't. Right? (laughs) It is. It I can see it being set to music. It is very rhythmic. It's it's very rhythmic and
3: a bit like modern rap, where the sounds of the words and the pulsating beat of the music and the effect of that gives you a meaning which isn't necessarily, you know, linked to the words. You know, where you can the two can work together. Right. And I think she's an extraordinary. She was a very musical poet and I, and I love her poetry and, and um, so she was, you know, her personality was extraordinary. I mean, she wore these, she wore, the clothes she wore were extraordinary and she wore these enormous hats and she was once staying with my grandfather when Noel Coward was staying and she went out into the garden and she, she disappeared and someone had to go and find her and Noel Coward said she was found lost among the cabbages. She had such a big hat on; she couldn't see out. And she refused <laughs> to take it off, so she was lost in the vegetable patch.
2: Well, you were obviously influenced by all these um, people who came before you and your family, because the book is as as readable as it is informative. I mean, so often these you know these books that try to to cover a lot of territory, a lot of ground. Um, are dry and yours is certainly the book is certainly not dry it it does move right along it's very enjoyable to read Um,
3: Um, kind of you i mean i think it's partly because i'm easily bored Mm. and um so i i i I kind of kept myself interested as i was writing it so and also someone who's spent sort of years catering for sort of magazines for mid-market
2: Got to keep, keep got to keep them simple. interested, huh?
3: <laughs> you know, so I've got sort of tabloid instincts, so right. I use that as well. But I did allow myself to drift off a bit and have some thinking and and a little bit of. Oh, no, you did, study. and I and but, I think if um, somebody
2: somebody wants a good topical history, you know, leading them through the the ages, it I don't. I think that this is, is truly a respectable book to, to go to because then they can veer off into what period they that interested them the most. So my question to you is how did you pick, I mean, it must have been a difficult decision how to pick which stopping points, where along the way. Um, what Did did they, something just stand out to you and really as, oh, this was a marker in, in history?
3: Well, I had a researcher that I worked with and... Together, she and I plotted um, the scope of the book, and we decided that we wanted to basically cover off various areas. So we wanted to start quite early,
2: start at a point. Well, you started at the beginning. I mean, So we started be- <laughs> start as early <laughs> as we could. Why not as just it, so. do like, a, like a, th- a thousand years of English food yeah. history? That would have been, that would have yeah, been exactly.
3: something. So <laughs> we kind of started as early as we could. And also I wanted to make sure that I was using primary sources because mm-hmm. there's lots of mythology about food, and I wanted to make sure that, when I, that I nailed facts. So, funnily enough, once you start investigating this subject, I found that the subjects, together along with the researcher I worked with, sort of popped up, and it was the best stories and the stories that most interested me. And then, and then, it was almost a case of me then arguing to myself and then arguing in the essay as to why this period was important. And so, for example, you know, you can't but help stop and analyze what the Spanish conquistador Hernan Cortes discovered um, in the early 1500s when he was um, conquering or discovering um, the new Spain, Mexico, and coming across that extraordinary Aztec leader Montezuma. Mm -hmm. Because of course, Cortes brings back chocolate, coffee, as well as gold, turkeys, tomatoes, chilies, these amazing ingredients. And, What's amazing is also to think of European, international food, what it was existing like without these things like tomatoes. And it's actually quite late that you get tomatoes mentioned. I mean, I stop at a guy called Antonio Latini, who was a, a cook in sort of Neapolitan Italy in the, in the sort of early 1700s. And he's the fir- he produced a book where you have the first ever mention of the word tomato in a recipe. So basically, with my journalistic hat on, I found myself naturally stopping in various points, but then I also would, would wanted to write about the the development of the modern supermarket, the development of modern contraptions in in kitchens, uh-huh. the development of the phenomenon of the celebrity chef, right. um, you know who was the first celebrity chef, Marcel Boulistan is my argument because he was he, he appears in an early schedule of the BBC in the 1940s right. and and then also looking at who were the key influencers in in cooking in, in, in the States, which is why I stopped with Alice Waters, um, you know, Mario Batali. I mean, Alice Waters, and as well as people like, you know, Francis Morlappe, mm-hmm. with the book we mentioned before. So really, once I started sketching out the broad brushstrokes, it was then a question of finding out, you know, what else I needed to, to paint the color and the dots, so that overall you have a history that then is a kind of history of everything that you have in your kitchen today.
2: That's right. I mean, well, there
3: were some dead ends I went down, like I wanted to write about the cheese grater because I thought that'd be quite interesting. And I, if you look on the Internet, it tells you that there's a, a museum in The Hague dedicated to cheese graters. And, I, you know, I just I looked and I looked and I looked and I think that was complete fantasy. So there were some cul-de-sacs that I found. I, I ended up in dead ends and I stopped and, and I realized I'd been sort of wasting my time. And there were other areas that um, that were much more fruitful. So, but as you say, I mean, I think in a way, it's, uh, what's interesting is that I'm able to tell a history of the world through food, because food influences everything that we do. And so it's a quite fun way of actually enveloping oneself in, in history. And I'm not a historian, I'm just a scribbler, but I learned a lot on, on the way. And I sat in the British Library, this amazing institution in London, which has virtually a copy of every book that's ever been published. Right. And you can hold these precious objects in your hand, these ancient books.
2: And, I, I have, really I, have I have visited the manuscript room, and it was it is quite quite unbelievable yeah well, I was impressed because you even uh, include some Chinese history in there which most people when they're writing about food history they stick to Western development and 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 don't venture into the east the Far east, but you do have um, a bit on uh, on some of um imperial china
3: and well, that's right I mean half of the world lives on kanji right. So I needed to sort I wanted to work out where this rice dish had come from, and so I delved into the book of Zo, which is um a pretty dense thick uh, official history of imperial china there's twenty four histories of imperial China and the book of Zo is fifty chapters long and is is the one that includes a reference to kanji and it's from sort of six three six and Given the influence, obviously, of China on the rest of the world, I thought I had to stop there briefly um, yeah. during the period of the Tang dynasty and look at who was eating congee, why they were eating it, and then reflect on the fact that, um, you know, obviously today people still eat congee. I think there's a there's a, a, fact, there's a museum dedicated to congee in Bangchung County in the Anhui province. Ta. So... Um, Maybe I should make a pilgrimage there.
2: Yeah, find well, out more. And it was certainly it's worth pretty, mentioning. <laughs> it's, not, it's, not,
3: it's not a dish that's particularly attractive to my palate, but I thought I ought to mention it.
2: Okay, so as much as I am impressed with your work in the book, I have to ask you a question. There was not long ago, just just a, a couple of years ago, um, a project um, um, by the BBC and Radio 4 at the British Museum called A History of the World in 100 Objects. Is this did this have an influence on your book by any chance
3: (laughs) Uh, not just an influence i completely ripped off the idea and (laughs) ran with it with food i thought if there's a history of the world in 100 objects we can do a history of food in 100 recipes and you know you can push it i mean someone else needs to write a history of war in 100 battles someone else can write a history of horticulture in 100 gardens so to me it just seemed a, a, a neat trick and funnily enough neil mcgregor who wrote that book i saw him at a literary festival in the uk and i showed him my book and i got him to sign it and i th- i said i'm thank you for allowing me to pinch your idea and he was fine about it so. <laughs> but now he, he he runs that famous museum in, in in england and his book is magnificent and it just seemed a very nice conceit to use in order to study food so i brazenly Unabashedly, without embarrassment, <laughs> I nicked that idea, and I've rolled it out.
2: For oh, well, you've just opened the door for a lot of other people to jump on the train. <laughs> so, well, as as much as um, we hate to just limit it to one hundred recipes, it's not really because you do give us um, reference points and talk about history for four thousand years, and anyone can can really infer from that that there's so so many more. Um, subjects to explore and so many more recipes to explore and you said yourself that this book is an investigation into and a tribute to the passionate people who have driven the, the story of food, its story forward over the centuries and I think you did it. I think you did a good job. And I and I'm still having fun with it. I have not read every chapter in its entirety. I tried to do a fast read. But another r- one of our hosts here at the radio studio walked in and said, "Oh, I love that book." He said, "I'm having such a good time with it." So <laughs> there you go. You won us over, and um, and it's it's certainly a credit to you. And good luck with the book in America. And welcome to this side and your launch of the book. And I hope to hear more from you. And thank, thank you, you for
3: being a- It's been a great treat talking to you. Thanks
2: a lot. It's been a pleasure spending time with you, and thank you for listening to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palacio.
1: Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.